It's a blessing to be back together this evening, and I'm thankful that you are here. I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak to you. Thank, thank you very much to the leadership and to the congregation for that and for your continued prayers and support. In our nation's founding documents, there it sits, the declaration that, that we believe that a person has the right to life, liberty, and a lot of you have already finished it in your mind, the pursuit of happiness. We think of that as a fundamental human right and a fundamental human goal. Who sets out to be miserable in life, right? We, we set out to be happy. To, to seek joy, not just a momentary euphoria, but something that lasts. Something that prevails through life's trials and difficult times. But we see a lot of people failing in their quest for joy. I remember several years ago, this probably was about 20 years ago, I visited the school where our children were attending at that time, and I went into the lunchroom there, the cafeteria. It was near uh, lunchtime and was going to see the kids. And there was one of the teachers or a teacher assistant standing there with a tray, like a, a regular-sized tray that you would expect to see in a cafeteria. And it was loaded from one end to the other with little pill cups. And this was a small school, a small 2A school. And I said, what's that? She said, that's medication. And I said, for these kids? She said, yeah, just for this group. Mind-altering, mood-altering medication. Well, I'm not trying to knock those medicines at all. Please understand that. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm in no way qualified to talk about what medicines are or are not appropriate. But as a preacher of the gospel, we understand, you, as a child of God, you understand that God's Word is qualified to speak to our spiritual and emotional well-being. And, and I just couldn't get over how stunned I felt at that, that there's, there's something is wrong. The Bible says in Psalms 32 and verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, <coughs> all ye that are upright in heart. This passage joins with a lot of other passages in commanding us to be joyful. It's not just something that we have a right to pursue. It's something we're supposed to be. That's not to say that you can never shed a tear or never have a problem or never have something that you feel like is getting the best of you. The idea of being a joyful person is not about figuring out how to never have moments of sorrow, but it's about figuring out how to have a certain kind of joy and a peace of mind that transcends those moments of sorrow so that even when sorrows hit, you've got something inside of you that says, you know, but it's okay. Because you've got this sense of joy that you fall back on. Depression rates are higher in more economically developed countries than in less developed countries. That statement begins a pursuit of information that I, I want to share with you to make the point that there is a failed quest for joy going on. What do people generally think will make them happy? 
more stuff. If getting a new thing makes me happy in that one moment, then having a steady stream of new and nice things ought to make and keep me happy. And yet, in secular science, they have discovered that countries that have more stuff have less joy. And they don't understand why. If you're a very seasoned Christian or very well-versed in the Word of God, I think you understand why. Wherever you're at by the end of the study, I hope we all have a deeper understanding. Americans have far more luxuries than they had in the 1950s. Grab somebody from that older generation that remembers the 1950s well. We've got microwave ovens. We've got better, more comfortable cars. A lot of us have climate-controlled homes, chicken nuggets. <laughs> I mean, we've got all kinds of things that people used to not have. Being able to watch a show of your choice through digital media, all that kind of thing, that's all very common today. We didn't have that a few years back. But during that time from then until now, the divorce rate has doubled. Teen suicide has tripled. And depression rates have soared. Just like that tray in that school cafeteria 20 years ago says, something's not working. And this is what the secular scientists and econ economists refer to as the Easterlin Paradox. Now, I want to put the Easterlin Paradox in, in a simple nutshell for you. That basically says the more we get stuff that we think will make us happy, the less happy we are. And so in the secular mindset, that, that's a paradox. That doesn't make sense. It, it ought to be different. It ought to be that the more you get stuff that you think will make you happy, the happier you'll be. But it doesn't work that way. Let me show you some graphs that illustrate this Easterlin paradox. Here is a graph that represents income in the United States relative to how people characterize themselves as whether or not they were very happy. And it goes from right there at the end of World War II until the mid-90s. The green line represents the gross domestic product. That's the nation's total wealth. And then the blue line represents people that would say they were very happy. Now there you've got the end of World War II. The boys are coming home from war. People are buying and building new homes. America is booming. You know, there, there are things that, that people could feel good about. The big war was behind them, and a lot of people were feeling better. But look what happened. We continued to prosper into the 50s and the 60s, and America became more and more wealthy, but people became less and less happy as a whole. And as time continued into the 70s, we got even more wealthy in spite of moments of economic distress, and the happy line just keeps dipping as the money keeps climbing. You get into the 80s where the economy just grew unbelievably, and into the 90s it continued to grow and to soar while people were less and less happy, more and more depressed, more broken homes, more problems, more despair, more failed quest for joy. Now what this graph shows happening on a national level, they've studied and they've shown that this also happens on an individual level. 
So here's a graph that represents uh, family income in the thousands of dollars per year and the percentage of people that would say they're very happy. And it follows a similar timeline from the mid-50s to the mid-2000s. And it starts out, income is climbing, just like we saw in, in the gross domestic product, but people were getting a little less happy. And through the following years into the 70s, the 80s, the late 80s, into the 90s, Family income continued to climb, and people continued to get less and less happy. That line continued to sink. And a secular scientist or an economist looks at that and says, this doesn't make sense. We have more of the stuff that we like, but yet we're less happy. Why is there failed quest for joy? And it goes back to what we studied this morning. What did we study this morning? That there's a fundamental brokenness of this world and there's a fundamental brokenness of the human heart. And part of that brokenness is we have a fleshly insatiability. We're given over or it's easy for us to become addicted to certain things. That's very obvious when you think about substance abuse and substance addiction. But it happens with a lot of different things in life. People become very addicted to things and they go for more wanting to get more happy. It's something that they like, but it's not working, so we'll get more. And that's not working, so we'll get more. There may be an immediate buzz, but long term, there's no deep and abiding, lingering joy. And that's because the heart is broken. The flesh is broken and cannot be appeased. In people's quest for joy, they look for joy in pleasure, in possessions, and in power. I think we could boil down the human pursuit to those three things. Doing things that we enjoy, that feel good, whether moral or immoral. Having more stuff and having more power. And you know, those are the things that drive a lot of people's engines. Some people are just all about having more power. And that power rush of feeling like they've achieved more sway and more influence over uh, what happens with other people, that just really makes them want to churn and burn. And with others, it's about getting more possessions. And with others, it's about having more buzz in the buzz of the moment. And all of those things fail. The quest for meaningful joy in the realm of pleasure fails. Titus 3 and verse 3, he said, speaking of the previous sinful life, he said, we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now first, let's ask, what kind of a person is Paul describing to Titus to whom he's writing here. Well, he's describing somebody that's serving all these different kind of desires and pleasures. So they're pursuing meaningful life through the, the avenue of pleasures. Now, is it working? Are they a contented person? How did he describe them? As being hateful and hating one another. That's miserable. They don't like themselves. They don't like each other. They don't like other people, and they're just this constant brooding conflict. I know that not everybody's life descends to an obvious abyss of that. There are varying labels of this condition or varying levels of this condition, but still the same. 
The Spirit directed Paul to describe a life pursuing pleasures as, as a heart that's just wrapped up in hate and misery. In Proverbs 14 and verse 13, he said, Even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful. In the end of that mirth is heaviness. This is a bitter truth about the human condition. You'll see people serving pleasure that insist, no, this is fun. I'm having fun. And there's all kinds of momentary laughter going on on the outside. And I can't tell you how many people living like that, once they stepped out of that letter, testified, I was laughing on the outside, but inside I was miserable. And in that state, they don't want to admit it. They don't want to admit that it's not working. No, this is great because this is what I want, and it's my life, and I can live it any way I choose, and so this is how I'm going to live. And on the outside, it can gloss over and look like a, a, a happy time, but on the inside, there's this growing agony and despair that it's not working. Now, as a child of God and a believer in the Word of God, I know you accept that because that's what the Word of God says. But imagine someone challenging that. What if somebody says, nope, that's not true. Then why is there this Easterland paradox? That the social scientists and economists look at and say, we don't understand. The Word of God answers the Easterland paradox. We can't be... We can't achieve full and meaningful joy by the pursuit of possessions. It's just like pleasure. Look in Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 11. It said, I looked at all the works that my hands had wrought and on all the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about Solomon's experiment in life. And in chapter 2, it really brings a lot of his thoughts to a head there in some very dramatic statements. I would encourage you to read Ecclesiastes 2 later at your convenience. If you're interested in, in pursuing this line of study, read that chapter. And you'll find Solomon talking about all these different things he owned, all these different things he built, all these different things that he had, all these different pleasures that he tried. And he had his hands, his arms were just full than more than, with more than heart could wish. And he said, I hated life. Here he characterized it. I was looking at all this stuff he had done and that he had and the works that he had built. And he said, it's vanity, it's fleeting, it's, it's, it's frustrating, it's not working. Vexation of spirit. Not only is it not making me more happy, but it's vexing me. It's making me more miserable. That's the Easterland paradox right there. We didn't need a group of university specialists to uncover that for us. We've had it in the book of Ecclesiastes for several centuries, haven't we? And we understand that that's true. Look at what he said in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10 about the uh, unrestrained pursuit of possessions. He said, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This passage echoes the same thing we learned from Ecclesiastes 2. People that make their lives all about getting more stuff, 
pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Not only does it fail to give them joy, but it makes them feel more misery. The other evening, my wife and I were uh, watching a documentary about a, a group of entertainers. They were vel- very well liked and beloved and had, they were one of the most successful uh, singing groups in, in history. And the, the amount of money that they made and the amount of, of songs and records that they sold was just staggering. And their fame was oppressive. And the documentary went through how that when they first got all that and what a rush that was, but it quickly became a burden and it quickly became a chore and they quickly became miserable. And it went back into each one's backstory and talked about things from their childhood coming up and difficulties and challenges they faced back then and how that channeled into the things they were experiencing as adults. And the bottom line was that that the wealth wasn't working. The fame and the notoriety, it wasn't working. And it pretty quickly hit a turning point where the rush was over and it was actually making them miserable. And as time went by, they just got more miserable. And guess what happened next? They turned on each other like rabid dogs, hateful and hating one another. Sound familiar? And it just made things worse. And so they all parted and went their own ways. And their lives just continued to fall apart. And I looked at my wife when it was over and I said, you know, every one of the problems they talked about those people having from their childhood that they said was the reason for this. Every one of those problems, I know people in the church that have problems just like that or worse, they're doing great. They're living happy and fulfilled lives through Christ. Now they have moments of sorrow. They have things they have to confront and deal with like everybody does. But it's nothing at all like this complete unraveling that was unfurling before us in this documentary. It's really sad to see these people suffer so much. And these passages we're reading will teach us about that and help us understand that if we'll open our hearts. And I know what we sometimes think. Yeah, it didn't work for Solomon, but I sure would like to give it a whirl. I think I could make it work. (laughs) And we know better. But yet there's this part of us that has this, if I just had... And insert your latest quest. Then it wouldn't be so much. And insert your latest sorrow. And we have to accept the fact that that is not where it's at. We're here in a physical world that requires physical things. And so we labor to obtain and provide for our own. The Lord requires that of us. But we have to understand that real meaning in life doesn't come from those things. It doesn't come from power either. A handy character to look at about that question is a gentleman from the book of Esther named Haman. And I'm throwing that term gentleman out pretty loosely. In Esther 3 and 1, it says, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. In the polity or the power structure of Persian government, you had a lot of these regional Uh, satraps or governors, you had regional powers, princes, and then you had people that were over them all the way up to the, the head honcho, the king of Persia. 
And Haman had a position that was very high. I get the sense reading in Esther, there really wasn't a whole lot of people above him except maybe the king himself. Perhaps a couple of close associates with the king. And that's about it. And the Persian Empire was the greatest empire in the world at that time in history. He had an unbelievable amount of power. And he was a miserable man. Esther chapter 5 here he's complaining to his family. Haman said, Moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He had a bitter thing for Mordecai. He hated him, and I'll tell you in a nutshell why. Because Mordecai wouldn't kneel down before him and bow. So before we learned that he was promoted to this high position of power in the Persian government, and now he's gloating about all this stuff and how the queen invited me, and it's nobody but me, and I'm there having a meal with the queen and the king, and boy, what a privileged position to be in, but he'd come to bitterly recognize it doesn't matter because there's another piece of power I hadn't got yet. That one guy, I can't get him to bow. And I want to tell you, however much power a person gains on this earth, there'll always be that other piece of power you don't have. However much pleasure you gain on this earth, there'll always be that other kind of pleasure you haven't had or that you can't have. However many possessions that you gather here on earth, there'll always be that other person that has their possessions that you don't have. And that's the part that'll get you when that's what you make your life about. Here in Haman's admission that the quest for power does not bring lasting joy, that is a failed quest for joy. In Psalms 33, verse 35 and 36, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. For whatever amount of fulfillment a person does find in power in this life, it will not last beyond the grave. The psalmist here aptly observed, so they had power for a while. They don't when they're dead. It's gone. Just like the possessions end at death, just like the pleasures end at death. Best case scenario, whatever these things will do for you in life, they won't serve you beyond this life. So the pleasures fail. And what you seek instead is sanctification. The possessions fail. So what you seek instead is sharing. The power fails. So what you seek instead is the surrender of power and the act of serving. And get the team of researchers back over there in the Easterland Paradox Room puzzling over all this stuff. And they would look at all that and saying, living sanctified or set apart from fleshly pleasures, that shouldn't work. Sharing what you have instead of gathering more for yourself, giving it away, that shouldn't work. Instead of having all this awesome power and being served by others, turning and serving instead, that shouldn't work. And yet it does. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches us, that those are the things that bring joy. Look at the idea. 
In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. In these words, the Apostle Paul turned the Easterland paradox on its head and flipped it around. And he's admitting to things that shouldn't work out that way. In the midst of all these trials and, and pro problems that he faced, he still had a lasting joy. Even though he was sorrowful, he yet still rejoiced. You remember when I said earlier that having joy isn't about figuring out how not to hurt when something goes wrong? That's not joy. That's not realistic. We can't learn that. <laughs> Hurting hurts, you see. So having joy isn't about somehow figuring out how not to hurt. It's about figuring out what to hold on to while you hurt that gives you a deeper joy that lasts when the hurt is gone because that comes and goes. And that's what Paul is talking about here. In James 5, verse 10 and 11, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Here he concluded, we count those guys happy because they figured out how to quit having trouble or quit hurting when they had trouble? No, because they endured. They held on to a deeper vein, something that gave their lives meaning, eternal hope. And that's where they found joy. Look at living in sanctification, living set apart from sin and sinful pleasures, living the life the Lord has called us to live. Hear how he described such people in the book of Isaiah 35 and verse 10. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Who has that kind of joy? Those that are ransomed of the Lord, those that are sanctified, those that have been set apart from the guilt of sin and have chosen to set their lives apart from the habit of sin. And he described them as coming before the presence of the Lord very joyfully. That sounds like a fulfilling life. Look at John 16 and verse 33. Hear how Jesus described this. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus said exactly what we're talking about. Yes, you'll have problems. Yes, you'll have trouble, but you can still have cheer. Why? Because Jesus overcome the world. We have eternal hope in him. And that's what keeps us going. And that's what gives us that sense of fulfillment. Think about sharing. What did he say in Acts 20 and verse 35? Talking to them about the importance of giving and sharing, he said, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It doesn't make sense to the secular mindset that giving brings you more joy than receiving. But it's true. When I think about this concept, I think about it in terms that to me are simple to try to illustrate the concept. So I want to use something simple to illustrate this to you. 
One time, my wife had to take a trip. I think it was something about one of her parents' health or something like that, so I was at the house by myself. I don't particularly enjoy eating supper alone, but I thought, I'm going to make this a nice meal. We had bought a beef off of somebody, and it had really good steaks. And when I called the, 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 the packing house to order the way that would cut, I did what any right-thinking person would do, and I had them cut those steaks an inch and a half thick. If you don't do that, I don't know what your problem is, but one of them is your steaks are too thin, okay? And I mean, I love them like that. Out there on the grill. And as I went out there to grill, I thought about all the times I'd been out there with one son-in-law or the other son-in-law or both of them at the same time and we were grilling meat together and what a joyful thing that was. And so I fixed up that steak and I fixed some mushrooms and I don't, I don't remember what all else, but I had a nice meal. And I, I got it all ready and I went in there and set it down at the head of the table. I sat down in my chair, I said my prayer and I looked up at that steak and there was no one to share it with. I'd give half of it away in a New York minute, even to one of my son-in-laws, <laughs> you know. I'd even give it to them. Can you believe how good this tastes? That's joy. Not just in having something, but in sharing it. And it's always better when it's shared with others. You can't fill a table enough with food to equal what it's like when it's filled with people. You think about that. And that's a very simplistic way to illustrate the fact that we're happier sharing what we have than we are just hoarding it. In Proverbs 14 and 21, He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth, but he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. The guy who finds real joy is the guy who identifies a real genuine need and assists that need. Let's dwell on that for just a moment in a way that I hope will help you really receive the truth of this passage. Does it get on your nerves that you feel like there's a lot of people out there that's receiving help that don't need help? A lot of people, you know, panhandling and, and making tons of money doing it. I'm not talking about someone poor and needy. I, I'm talking about those cases of corruption that we hear about from time to time. Maybe you witness a few of them. Does that get on your nerves? We don't like that. But don't let that sour you on the idea of giving. If you give to someone and you really doubt their level of need or whatever, that, you know, that just kind of messes it up. But what happens when you identify somebody that you know they're really trying, they're really doing their best, but they've just hit a wall and they're struggling and so you discreetly slide them a little bit to try to help them out. Is there any feeling that's any better than that? I mean, however small that gift might be, it feels way better passing into their hands than it does staying in my pocket. And you know that's true. You know that's true because a lot of you live that. And you understand the point that's being made here. Real joy doesn't just come in having, it comes in sharing. And it comes in serving. At the holidays, who's the one singing in the house? <laughs> it's the mom that's cooking for everybody, and she's just glad they're there. And people can't get her to sit down and quit serving. I wonder why. 
Part of it's because that's where she finds her joy. John 13, 16, and 17, while teaching the disciples a lesson on humble servitude, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. You'll be happy people if you serve each other. It just works that way. It's sort of like giving. Go do something for somebody. And experience the joy of that. It's better than being the one in the big chair that gets doted on all the time. That seems great at first, but after a while you get tired of it because it's empty. In Philippians 2, verse 17 and 18, Paul said, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also ye do joy and rejoice with me. Paul says here, if I'm just totally sacrificed and serving for your good and serving the cause of Christ, he said, that's when I have joy. That's when I rejoice when you're doing for others. You know, when somebody's a little kid, that's kind of hard to understand that. Our beginning point of reference in life sometimes can get a little bit selfish. I know there's some kids that are exceptions to that, but you recognize that's sort of common. But as you get over, older and you experience something that we label as maturing, and you more and more figure out it's not all about me, you come to learn. You know, having power and being the one that served, it's not always it. The real joy is in doing the serving. And so instead of the fleeting pleasures in this life that don't work, we're looking for eternal pleasures. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says, we're looking for something that's not here, not now, not temporal, but it's over yonder. <clears throat> it's the eternal pleasures that mean the most. Fleeting possessions in this life? No, he says, we seek heavenly possessions. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you want your heart in heaven, then set your treasures in heaven and make the treasures of your time and your energy and your passions pour into that heavenly reward. That's eternal possessions, heavenly possessions. And I want to tell you, there's no greater power that we can possess than God's praise. Than for God to praise us and commend us and receive us. And you might wonder, well, how, how can that be power? Stay tuned. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. God will praise his faithful children on Judgment Day. He will commend you. I know that's kind of hard for me to soak in too. 
We know too much of our faults, don't we, to imagine that. But just understand the blood of Jesus taking all of that away and hear his promise to say to the faithful, well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter in. To the joys of your Lord. There is no greater power than the power to be able to cross over into heaven's threshold. And the most powerful might among man on earth cannot attain that by just chasing might and power on earth. There is no more profound weakness than being at that moment and not having the power to cross over. That's why the praise of God is the greatest power we can receive. And that redirects our focus away from things in this life into things that will give us sustained and everlasting joy, a hope for heaven's pleasure, a hope for heaven's treasure, and a hope for God's praise, His commendation that you did it, you did a good job. And you're thinking, but my Savior did it, and I know that, and God knows that too. But through that Savior, He can commend you and commend me. And you know what? That gives me a joy that bad times on earth can't steal. That's a joy worth chasing. Psalms 146 and verse 5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. That's the one that's happy. That's the one that's joyful. And that's the joy we have as children of God. Let's go live like it. Let's go let that be seen. Let's keep our lives redirected and refocused towards that heavenly reward where lasting joy and the hope of that lasting joy prevails through life's troubles. As you think about these things and you think about the failed quest for joy, I hope you don't see in yourself a life that is a failed quest for joy. But if that is your experience, understand there's relief in Christ, and we want to offer you that at this hour. If you need to become a Christian or if as a Christian you need the prayers of the church, we stand ready to assist you in whichever way that we might help you. Won't you come? Have a seat on the front while we stand and while we...